Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and from around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show about the texture and vibe of our amazing city. On most programs, like tonight's, Rediscovering New York focuses on individual New York neighborhoods, exploring their history and also their current energy. What makes that particular neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, musicians, artists, and sometimes other neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, we host shows about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, some of you know that I've talked about the history of U.S. presidents who came and lived in New York. We've talked about the history of women's suffrage in Brooklyn more than 100 years ago. We've also spoken about the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. We did special episodes on Stonewall 50. Uh, and in the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, or the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. And last episode, I fulfilled a long-time promise I made to you all. I hosted a show about punk and new wave in New York. Finally got it done, but it was a lot of fun. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can get it on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. By the way, the punk and new wave show is episode 35. My first guest this evening is a regular to Rediscovering New York, the amazing Joyce Gold, Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews. She does it through private walking tours as well as tours that are open to the public. Uh, her site is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce is also published. She's written two guidebooks. One is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan. And she's also written From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if all of this wasn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce, and this is an exact quote, the doyen of New York City tour guides, a compliment any tour guide would love to have, but which Joyce is well-deserved. And we give a hearty welcome back to Joyce Gold to Rediscover in New York. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, I notice on our stats each week that we get more listeners, and now we're up to 50 countries around the world. And uh, at the risk of uh, sounding a little repetitive, uh, there are people who are listening to the show who don't know what your personal history is. From, is. Um, and also your background and what led you to be doing what you do for people. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 1970s, I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on Wall Street. It wasn't a job that really excited me, but I love stories. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in English literature. So one day in the old Mendoza's bookstore on Ann Street, long gone, unfortunately, I picked up a 100-year-old book about New York basically 100 years before that. Now, Manhattan really, in a way, with European settlement, begins at the southern tip of the island, just the area where I was working. And I was finding out about all kinds of things that happened on the streets that I used every day between the subway and my office. And it was thrilling, and it changed my daily enjoyment of town. In those years, nobody I worked with really knew much about New York history. And so uh, I started giving tours originally on weekends, mainly to New Yorkers. And that has blossomed into really a fabulous career that makes me feel that I retired 40 years ago because I'm sort of living a passion and I think helping change people's lives and maybe changing the perception they have of New York. And for those of us who were lucky enough to experience your great tours, they really are amazing. Full disclosure, Joyce and I partner on a number of tours that I host for my real estate business. Um, the East Village, well, now what we know is the East Village. Mm-hmm. It has some very old New York uh, and some very old New Amsterdam history. Exactly. It has what a lot of what I call uh, layers of time, and it really harkens back to the Dutch period in New York history, which was 1624 to 1664. Uh, the city was pretty much south 
of where the protective wall gets built. And of course, that today is Wall Street, ever since they've knocked down the wall. It was the out-of-town area that was the the area owned by Governor Peter Stuyvesant, our fourth, fourth Dutch governor. On today's map, he owned basically from 3rd Street to 23rd Street, which is a full mile, 20 blocks of the grid are a mile, and from 3rd Avenue to the East River. He had the slaves of the Dutch West India Company lay out a route to his farm, and uh, the Dutch word for farm is Bowery, and that's the origin of that very early, in fact, for many years, the only uptown, downtown street in the city. Was there any kind of settlement uh, or farm there before Stuyvesant started his place? Well, uh, the first African Americans are brought to Manhattan in 1626, and 18 years later, some of them are given land in the outlying district, partly to be a buffer against any Indian attack, and partly to farm uh, for uh, goods that they could eat and they could also sell and they could also give as something of a tax to the people in the lower city. Because in the lower city in those days, people were making tons of money in the fur trade. The first six years the Dutch were in Manhattan, they sent 63,000 beaver and otter pelts back to New uh, Europe, and who wanted a farm? That was hard work. So blacks were brought in partly to do the farming, and in 1644, some of them are given free land in the outlying districts, which would have been on the Bowery. So you could say that after the Native Americans, who were more, you might say, peripatetic, they would move around from place to place, uh, were the freed blacks of 1644. Well, of course, uh, the Dutch lose New Netherland in 1664 uh, without a shot being fired. That's right. And Stuyvesant is allowed to keep his farm. That's correct. Uh, Stuyvesant was a very law and order governor that they brought in and served for the last 18 of the 40 Dutch years. And all throughout his tenure, he kept asking his bosses, who were the 19 men of the Dutch West India Company in Europe, for more protection, for more money to keep the fort up, to keep the wall as a protection. But the uh, Dutch West India Company wasn't making as much money on this uh, colony as they expected, so they really didn't supply him with much. And when Stuyvesant loses the place to the British, uh, he's so disgusted that the Dutch West India Company wants to blame him that he decides to spend his last year. He lives until 1672, another six year, another uh, eight years, uh, under Dutch rule, and he preferred living in English Manhattan rather than the Netherlands from which he came. Well, let's fast forward about 100 years to when we were rebels and we uh, uh, revolted (laughs) against uh, the mother country. What was the area that became the East Village? What would it have been like around the time of the revolution? Was it much different from what it had been 100 years before? Uh, Well, the Stuyvesants still owned a big chunk of property, and uh, they started on paper laying out streets. Three of them in one direction were named for males of the Stuyvesant family, Three of them in the other direction were named for females of the Stuyvesant family. Now, this was before the master grid plan of 1811. Correct. And, yes, there were different enclaves before the grid plan. The city, for one thing, had been built up to Houston Street by 1811, so nothing below that is still in the grid. And there were certain enclaves that were designed, for example, the Lower East Side, uh, a little south of the East Village that we're talking about today, was owned by um, uh, James Delancey at the time of the revolution. His land wasn't was, he a loyalist? He was, he, and therefore his land was confiscated by the state and diced up. So that's kind of a certain street plan today. Uh, and so it was with the Stuyvesants. I believe that only one of those six streets, however, was ever laid out, and that's Stuyvesant Street. And Stuyvesant Street is particularly interesting for a number of reasons. For people who know it, they often say, oh, yes, Stuyvesant Street, that's the street in the East Village that's at an angle because it's at the Bowery and 9th Street, 
and goes to 10th Street on 2nd Avenue, a block to the east. But real, they would be 100% wrong because Stuyvesant Street was laid out with a compass and is the only true east-west street in the neighborhood. The grid plan was st- simply laying out streets that were the shortest route from between the East River and the Hudson River. And so all of the grid plan number streets are at a 29-degree angle, wow. where Stuyvesant Street is not. So it harkens back to all of that time. Now, after the American Revolution, Stuyvesant's great-grandson, Petrus, had a lot of land and decided to divest himself of some of it. He gives a park, a property that could use legally only as a park, that is today Tompkins Square Park in the east part of the East Village. And that's where it dates from. It's from Petrus Stuyvesant back hundreds of years ago. I'm sorry, say that? That's that's That was Tompkins Square Park's origin, was Petrus Stuyvesant who... That's right. Oh, wow. And in the deed, it said it can only be used as a park or else it reverts to the family. Uh, so he also gave money and land to any denomination that would build a church and take care of his great-grandfather's grave on that site. And I guess the Episcopalians, after the Revolution, raised their hands, and that's the origin of the still very active St. Mark's in the Bowery Church. In fact, the original Peter Stuyvesant, he's buried right alongside 2nd Avenue in that churchyard. That's right. He's buried, I believe, under the church, but uh, there is a wonderful stone commemorating that on the eastern exterior side of the church, and one of the stained glass windows has a wonderful portrait of the governor. At what point would we have seen uh, lots created, that land broken up into lots, and and the kind of row houses that we see today begun Mm -hmm. to be built? Well, certainly before the 1840s, when especially a lot of Irish people started moving into the buildings over there in certain parts of it, uh, but I would think a little before that as well. Hmm. And there are some g- incredibly gorgeous homes on 10th Street and Stuyvesant Street. And That's right. That was kept in the Stuyvesant family. <coughs> uh, the great-grandson's daughter, Elizabeth, married a very prominent man whose last name was Fish. And Elizabeth Fish's garden was the triangle between uh, that section, that block of 10th Street and Stuyvesant Street. She dies in 1856, and that's when that was created. So much of the, uh, much, although not all, of the buildings in the East Village were built for tenements. They were not built very strongly. They were built for poor people, and they didn't put a lot of um, amenities in it. But those blocks, because they were built uh, later and with a different point of view, uh, are the elegant parts. As a matter of fact, the great architect Stanford White was brought up on one of those blocks in a building that no longer exists. Hmm. I know that uh, that was a pretty fashionable part of town, and... um there were a couple of blocks around 3rd Street and 4th Street that had really nice housing before those other, that went up in the 1830s. That's right. And also St. Mark's Place. That's where, when it was a a large German enclave, uh, that's where the doctors and the more prosperous people of the neighborhood were. And there's still houses left on that block from the 1830s and even before, because one of them, I believe it's, uh, I believe it's number four East St. Mark's Place, was the home of one of the sons and the widow of Alexander Hamilton. Wow. And of course, Hamilton was killed by the vice president uh, in a duel in 1804. And it took a while before people helped his widow stay in the Grange uptown, and then the son brought them to St. Mark's Place. So you can see that it was quite uh, an elaborate street at the time to be the home of the son and widow of the first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. Well, okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold and talk about the next phase of development in the East Village uh, for a very uh, big wave of foreign immigrants who came to the country in the middle of the 19th century. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york with jeff goodman that's me i'm jeff goodman and with our first guest joyce gold of joyce gold history tours uh joyce how can people find out about your amazing tours well i am so glad you asked that question i have a website and there are two kinds of tours that i do one uh mainly i do private tours people who come to the city and want to get the best and the best, uh, the best visit will often hire me to do a tour of a neighborhood that interests them at a time that interests them. I, I do a lot of tours for corporations and organizations and, and so on. And real estate brokers from time to time. And real estate brokers who I love to do tours for because they know a lot about some of the things on the tour. Uh, but I also have a schedule that most weekends of the year and sometimes during the week as well I offer a tour that people don't have to reserve for. They can just show up. I specialize in over 40 different neighborhoods of the city. I keep adding new uh, neighborhoods because I love to do the research and make an interesting story out of the whole thing. Mainly, I like to ask my qu- myself the question, what makes this neighborhood different from the others? And it's very reasonably priced, and people can just appear it. So if they look at Joyce Gold History tours with an s.com they can find out about all of this and you also have a great instagram account yes i do i i'm around the city constantly i photograph daily on just about and uh we post those images so and i hope people will come to that choice gold history tours exactly wow okay <laughs> surprised uh getting back to the east village or what would become the east village mm-hmm. because it wasn't called the east village back then um the east village became the country's first neighborhood where most people who lived there spoke a language other than English. That's correct. And one of the things that uh, most stands out to me about the East Village is that different ethnic groups had enclaves at the same time. In many of New York neighborhoods, one group moves in, and then maybe they or their children do well, and they move out or they move uptown, and then another group moves in. But it's not like that in the East Village. Uh, For example... The northeast corner has a long Irish history, and St. Bridget's Church is still there that harkens back to the 1840s when uh, a great many, when a quarter of the city had just come off the boat from Ireland. The northwest part is, uh, is an area that is of a different ethnic group, and what had been Irish becomes Italian around 1900 when a lot of Italian people moved to town. Uh, German as well came in in great numbers. In 1850, 52% of the city was foreign born, half from Ireland and a quarter from Germany. Wow. So although, uh, and, and the East Village as it's now called, was the most, uh, most populated with Germans area. It was called Kleine Deutschland. Exactly. Um, why did German immigrants flock to this part of the city compared to any other place that they could have gone? Well, that is a good question. And I think, for one thing, people move to an area that they find affordable at the time. Um, I'm not really sure, to tell you the truth, why that particular area. 
But I can tell you a way that I like to find out what ethnic groups used to be in a part of town because the two institutions that tend to stay on the longest are houses of worship and cuisine. Hmm. Well, speaking of cuisine, I want to remind our listeners that the annual Steuben Day or Steuben Day Parade is going to be held in New York. It's on the third Saturday of the month, and this year it's going to be on September 21st. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Oktoberfest. Um, and then the what became the East Village was such an uh, important part of, of German-American culture, and then something really terrible happened. In fact, uh, the disaster the likes of which New York had not would not see again for, exactly. for about 100 years. It was the greatest loss of life in the city until 9-11. It happened on a beautiful June day in 1904, and it was because of an event that traditionally happened every year out of that neighborhood. It was um, sort of out of a Sunday school, out of the German Evangelical Church on East 6th Street, a building still there, that uh, people, possibly over 1,300 people, they didn't uh, count them correctly. Um, They counted two children as one person, so we're not sure exactly how many were on a boat. But the church... On a Wednesday, rented a boat. People went up the East River and then went out. were supposed to go out for a picnic on an island in the Long Island Sound and then come back. Because it was a weekday, it was almost completely women and children. The men were mostly at jobs. And um, it was a time of the progressive movement, but improvements had not hit many things, including this ship. So there were many, many things wrong with it. An accidental fire began inexperienced crew did not report it to the captain for 15 minutes after the first smoke was seen and by that time the captain had gotten the ship into the most treacherous waters on the Atlantic coast south of Boston Hellgate where uh, the East River, Harlem River and Long Island Sound come together people started jumping off the ship but they were very treacherous waters 100 ships a year by 1904 were going down in Hellgate and um, over a 1,000 people died, half of them children. Wow. The General Slocum disaster. Uh, The government official who had recently said everything's fine was not prosecuted. Steamship company of the ship called the General Slocum ship, uh, the famous General Slocum disaster, it's been called, uh, was not prosecuted. It was just the captain who, for a number of years, was in jail. And he got a presidential pardon, ultimately. Yes, when uh, William Howard, Howard Taft became president, he did pardon him. Who happened to be a Republican. But anyway, not to uh, get into that. And the captain uh, was a distant cousin of Teddy Roosevelt, if you want to get into that. Oh, really? Presidents. He was? Oh, yes, okay, he was. okay. Captain was also Von Schaik. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> hardly anyone who lived in that community was not touched by knowing, having a family member or friends or loved ones who, who yes. were lost. What, what was the demographic result of, of such loss in this community? Well, I think the silence was deafening. There was a two-hour cortege of funeral cars out to the uh, Middle Village Queens uh, uh, Cemetery. And uh, the men, I think, just couldn't bear the silence of the absence of the children and the musicians and all the people speaking German on the street and in Tomkins Square Park. And they began to move out. Williamsburg, Brooklyn was, I believe, one of the places to which they moved. As well as Yorkville, uptown. Yes, Yorkville in the East 80s up uh, in Upper Manhattan uh, was also already a German enclave, but East Village was more so before the Slocum disaster. Um, And uh, so a lot of people who left the East Village started moving to Yorkville in greater numbers. Ship Ablaze, a wonderful book on this this tragedy. And of course, sadly, but uh, an inevitable consequence is that when families and people moved out, it created uh, vacancies and cheaper rent. That's right. So we had other communities who began to, people of other communities who, who made the East Village their home. Yes, that's correct. Uh, including my great-grandparents. My uh, grandmother didn't tell me this, but the time that she told me that my great-grandparents moved, uh, they had lived on Hester Street in the Lower East Side, very squalid conditions. They moved down to Alabama Avenue when the new BMT subway was open. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather got so bored living out in the suburbs that uh, uh, my grandmother said, oh, there was cheap rent. In, on the Lower East Side, and mm. they uh, moved to 10th Street. 
So uh, that had to have been one. Well, you just differentiated the Lower East Side from the East Village, but of course the East Village was called the Lower right. East Side <laughs> until the 1980s. I heard of a story, so, you know, they, they changed the name, kind of a rebranding kind of process. And I heard that in the 1960s, there was an elderly guy who, who lived in a longtime tenement in the East Village. And they said to him, well, where do you live? Do you live in the Lower East Side or do you live in the East Village? He said, I've been living here for 80 years. I pay $53 a month. I live in the Lower East Side, but three flights up, there are these young kids, same apartment. <laughs> they pay 900 a month. They live in the East Village. <laughs> well, 900 a month, that would be a veritable deal. <laughs> yes. Um, and of course, after this this change, uh, one of the things that the that what became the East Village saw was a flourishing of the Yiddish theater. Yes, correct. The Yiddish theater uh, is one of the first groups to be thrown out of Russia under the Tsar in the 1880s, and many of them came to Grand Street to the south. But uh, with the exodus of a lot of the Germans from the East Village then Second Avenue became the center of the Yiddish Theater of America, very vibrant. Hmm. Sophie Tucker came out of there and uh, a lot of other things. Well, didn't Red Buttons act in the Yiddish Theater once upon a time? Red Buttons, oh yes. Jimmy Cagney did too? Yeah, Red Buttons, very Catskill humor as they call it. Uh, Well, I want to fast forward a little bit in the couple of minutes we have left. uh, the Lower East Side and what became the East Village, I think the East Village, uh, uh, that part of the village, east of the village, was coined beginning in the 60s. It began a period of economic decline and also safety decline. But then um, we have the birth of a different kind of life, that of counterculture. You had some of the beatniks who were moving in, uh, people like Allen Ginsberg. You had the Nyarican literary movement and also the birthplace of some new music and punk in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smith both lived in the East Village. Actually, they lived together for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, CBGB's opened in 1974. CBGB's, yes. Blondie's and the Ramones got their start in the East Village, and the Fillmore East opened in 1968. Also, there were artists uh, like Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and David Wojnarowicz, who also made the East Village their home. Um, and uh, it's also a place where a lot of gay people moved into in the 1980s for cheaper rent and centrally located housing. I started hanging around in the East Village uh, in the 1980s. Full disclosure, I moved into the neighborhood in 96. By then, it had already been gentrified a little bit. Um, Joyce, we can't talk about the East Village without talking about the Bowery and about Skid Row. Mm-hmm and how that has become transformed in the past number of years. Well, even by the 1870s and 80s, because I have uh, duplicates of guidebooks to New York in the 1870s and 80s and 93, 1893, and people were being, visitors were being warned to not visit this place, which had a lot of rip-off kind of... In 1893? 1893, and it was in the 1890s that that very popular song came about, The Bowery, The Bowery, I Don't Go There Anymore, and it's kind of a classic song about tourists being ripped off in a lot of different ways on the Bowery. Uh, So that's what it was at that time. And then by, especially the Depression, it became a place, sort of a notorious skid row, that if you couldn't go any lower, that was the Bowery. And there's still some elements of homelessness and uh, addiction to alcohol and so on in that area. That's where the phrase the Bowery Bum comes from. Exactly. Um, Well, we're just about out of time. Uh, Joyce, I want to thank you again for appearing on Rediscovering New York. Uh, Joyce's website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce runs tours through most of the year. Uh, And you can also check out Joyce's Instagram page, Joyce Gold History Tours. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have a special guest whose family has owned a business right on St. Mark's Place for more than 50 years. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. 
Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 212- Four nine five zero three one seven. Our show is about New York and especially its neighborhoods and also the myriad textures of what makes this city amazing. Even though I work in real estate, you know one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, my listeners, there is a really good one out there. It's called Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. Uh, The page is called Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram. My handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one other note before we get to our our second guest. Even though this is not a show about real estate in New York, when I am not hosting this show, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you can see, if you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest on Rediscovering New York is someone whose family has a long history in the East Village, and I stand corrected, it's more than 50 years, uh, Lorcan Otway. Lorcan and his wife Jeannie own Theater 80 on St. Mark's Place. Lorcan was born into a theater family with theatrical roots that extend back to the 1670s. Three centuries, my God. He grew up backstage, building Theater 80 with his father at the age of nine. Lorcan has been a combat photographer in the northern counties of Ireland in the 1970s, a boat builder and busker in Ireland in the 1980s, a civil rights lawyer, and he also curates the Museum of the American Gangster on St. Mark's Place, which is over Theater 80 and also over the William Barnacle Tavern, which he owns and runs. His film, The Girl in the Safe, is presently in development. It's about an incident which led to Lorcan and his father finding $2 million in gold certificates, which we're going to talk about, which his father gave to the, quote, wrong gangster. I wonder how the right gangster felt about that. Lorcan, a very special welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you very much. Yes, I've often said that. Uh, the term wrong gangster is almost always an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever gangster you're with when you find $2 million is exactly the right, right gangster. gangster to be with. So, yes. um, whatever happened to this girl? Well, actually, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, uh, as much as you were a quintessential and nearly lifelong East Villager, you weren't from the East Village originally. You weren't no. born there. My, my uh, dad took a bit of time to... Um, retired to a small farm and writes the great American novel several times, a number of plays. So we had one of the last sandlot farms in Westchester and uh, in the woods uh, between New Rochelle and Pelham. And when I was nine, uh, my father wandered into what had been a uh, nightclub called Scheib's Place, or the Jazz Gallery, and said to Scheib, I'd like to build a theater here, but no one's going to loan me $64,000. Scheib said, well, I'll loan you the money. And uh, my father didn't realize it, but uh, Scheib was looking for a patsy because he knew that there were 
millions of dollars hidden in the basement, but he didn't know whether his boss was alive or dead. Uh, long story short, um, Dad begins to build the theater. Uh, we move in, and we're literally living in the exca uh, excavation in tents while um, upstairs Joan Mitchell, the painter, was living in the unit that later becomes our apartment. And uh, while uh, excavating, we find two hidden safes. My father, at this point, from the neighborhood, knows that Mr. Scheib was, as they say, mobbed up. So he uh, calls Scheib and he says, I'm too curious to leave these safes closed, but too cautious to open them without you. And Scheib shows up with a safe cracker and uh, tells him that he had forgotten the combination from 1933, the last year of Prohibition. And when, was the, and when were these so, safes cracked? Uh, uh, 1964. Okay. And uh, we find $2 million in gold certificates. Scheib gives not a penny to my dad, but uh, instead builds the, um, the Promenade Hotel in Miami Beach. Uh, dad then actually does fall behind in the payments, which is what Scheib had been hoping for in that uh, he was hoping that uh, before Dad found the safes that he would go bankrupt, Scheib would get the building back, and then if his boss ever showed up after he opened the safes, he could blame my dad. But being that we had already found the safes, he uh, gave my dad a little bit of time. Dad didn't realize this, so he was in hiding on Bruckner Boulevard, sure that Scheib was going to come and break his legs. And during that period, your good man Charlie Brown opened, and we were able to pay off the mortgage. Oh. So, <laughs> Launching wow. the careers of Bob Balaban, Gary Berghoff, and one of our ushers, Billy Crystal. Wow, wow, what a story. Yeah. When did your parents start the theater? Uh, 1964, we began building it. By uh, late 65, we opened uh, with a sh very short run of a play that my father had uh, written. It was his first real uh, artistic failure. He had been a script doctor in Hollywood. He had uh, rewritten the script for The Music Man in Saratoga. Uh, his play Penny on the Drum had gotten wonderful reviews. His novels had been well reviewed. And um, the I think it was the, the, the rush of trying to get the theater built and open and uh, a, a number of uh, problems with the play This Year Nice Place, one of which was Dad had cast James Earl Jones in uh, one of the roles. And Mr. Jones uh, got a film uh, role and uh, left the production, uh, giving his father the role. His father then got a play and left. And so Griff Evans did a very good job of it. But the, um, the rehearsals were uh, plagued by problems. And uh, the, uh, the lead uh, had trouble remembering his lines. And so the, the play was panned. And uh, Dad didn't write again for 30 years after that. So. Wow. Well, I'd like to get back to the East Village in a, in a, in a couple of minutes, but I, I want to ask you a couple of other things about your background, sure. Lorcan. Um, tell us about your law background. What inspired you to, to study law? Oh, goodness. Uh, when building boats in the west of Ireland, I'd taken up the sport of curric racing. It's an ocean rowing sport. We, uh, Correct, so these little boats, by the way, that are probably about 12 feet long and then have tar on the bottom. and are, no, 26 feet long. Oh, and, that, okay. uh, uh, each rower has two 10-foot-long oars, and they're for ocean rowing. Uh, the, the shorter boats that you describe are up in uh, the northern counties, up in Donegal, they're uh, Tory Island Kirks or Dunfahany Kirks. But, uh, oh, those are the ones that I saw. That's why I thought they probably, were like 12 feet. Okay, exactly. Okay. Uh, these are the, the, the serious ocean boats. and uh, At 26 feet, serious and, ocean boats. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we would um, race. We began a racing league here in the States, and up in Boston they uh, decided that they weren't happy with the makeup of our crews. Our, our club was about three-quarters Irish and Irish-American. Then we had a team from Turkey. We had uh, Hispanic New Yorkers. We had black New Yorkers. And when they... Uh, uh, the Boston team decided that they didn't want black rowers rowing in their races, and uh, the Annapolis team uh, supported them that. And that uh, got me angry enough to go to uh, law school. So I wrote a letter to the Annapolis uh, team lawyer saying, now that I am a lawyer, and uh, explaining my point of view, and uh, went back, did my undergraduate years, uh, got into NYU Law School, and uh, graduated into a civil rights practice for about 15 years. Wow. Um, and in the midst of all this, you found yourself as a photographer in the northern counties of Ireland. Well, yeah, actually, yes, that's how I got into boat building. In the, in the mid-70s, uh, I had gone up to, um, to Belfast. I'd been in the last year of the 
registration for the Vietnam War draft, and I was a conscientious objector and uh, so full of youthful zeal uh, to uh, prove that it wasn't a matter of cowardice. I, I went to war with a camera instead of a, a gun. Uh, I don't recommend it to anyone, but I, I certainly learned more about uh, uh, international uh, politics and life, I think, in those uh, times in Belfast. But during that time, I met my, my wife, Jeannie, and uh, she um, said no more wars. <laughs> so uh, we decided that it was time to go down to West Kerry and learn boat building. Ah. <laughs> well, for uh, those of our listeners who don't know, the uh, counties in the north were the uh, scene of the troubles, the uh, um, uh, bombs from the Irish Republican Army, but also on the other side from, or other extremists, uh, from certain Protestant paramilitary groups. Well, to be very accurate, also it was a, uh, it was a, what's the word they use? Uh, the during the during the Cold War, Ireland being a non-aligned nation, uh, Britain instituted uh, uh, instigated the war in the north of Ireland to keep NATO presence on a non-aligned uh, island, and it is as much a matter of um, controllable. Uh, uh, wars that uh, it's very similar to what the CIA did in Central and South America. But a very sadly dangerous low intensity, place. Uh, low intensity conflict is the word I was mm. looking for. Yeah. Well, three thousand about three thousand people were killed in the Yeah, exactly. Really, really horrible. Um, let's come back to the East Village. When did yes, you? Uh, uh, when did you? How old were you when you started spending time in the East Village? I, I was uh, nine years old, and uh, although I we, we'd been coming to the theater because being a theater family, uh, you know, New York City was kind of our backyard. Uh, as a child, but um, we moved to St. Mark's Place uh, before it was the Haight-Ashbury of the East Coast, and uh, at that time, the uh, speaking of the, the ethnic uh, makeup of the, the community was mostly um, Italian down towards First Avenue, uh, Ukrainian and Polish in the middle of the block, uh, uh, Ukrainian on 7th Street. The uh, German population um, as Joyce said, was absolutely right. The Slocum had a huge part of that, but also Harama. Uh, about four-fifths of the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade had died in the Battle of Harama, and uh, they were hugely represented by the young Germans of, uh, of uh, the, uh, that part of the Lower East Side. They, they organized on 7th Street, and so wow. that had a <laughs> profound effect. on. Uh, and so, again, that, that uh, after World War II, uh, the Ukrainian community moved into the vacuum created by the uh, the, the huge uh, loss of Germans in that neighborhood. Hmm. For our listeners who don't know, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade was a force mostly of American Republicans with a small R who fought on the uh, Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, they did not win that conflict. Or as my mother would say, American Reds. Uh, <laughs> That's right. My, mo my mother was a very proud, mm. premature anti-fascist. Uh, in fact, I'm wearing her 15th International Brigade lapel pin at the moment. And, and, of course, one of the things that's, that's emblematic of the increase in the Ukrainian community is the Ukrainian National Home, which is a relatively new building and not completely in character with uh, uh, the older elements of the East Village. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Lorcan Ortway of Theater 80. Be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
we're back to Rediscovering New York and our second guest, Lorcan Otway. Uh, Lorcan and his wife, Jeannie, own Theater 80. Lorcan, why don't you tell us about uh, some interesting things that are happening at the theater this coming fall? What, what do you have on the, on the agenda? Well, the theater is, uh, we're a commercial rental house. We're one of the last of the off-Broadway commercial houses. We've, we've lost about uh, 70 com- uh, commercial theaters in New York in the past 10 years. And so what we, uh, we have um, on Tuesday nights, Naked Angels, which is a uh, theatrical uh, uh, workshop. Uh, Monday nights, we have Irish uh, dance classes on the stage. We have a wonderful Irish uh, uh, session in the tavern with a number of All-Ireland champion players. When is this? And, what night uh, of the week? I'm a big uh, fan of Irish traditional uh, music. I, every Monday at 9. Okay. And uh, come early for the dance classes. The, uh, my, my wife and I uh, met uh, in Irish dancing oh, way, wow. way back when. Then uh, we have uh, a number of uh, shows that come with some regularity. Uh, the Improvised Shakespeare comes. The uh, 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 Ryan Laundrie's uh, uh, troupe from Provincetown comes down. So it's a, um, and every now and then we also still have film at Theater 80. And so uh, there's, there's always something going on. Well, when I started, first started hanging out in the East Village in the early 80s, uh, Theater 80 was, was a movie house, and I saw some great movies there, a small theater, you know, but still yes. the silver screen. I really. That uh, was our reaction to the 1969 off Broadway theater strike. Uh, before the reorganization of off Broadway theater, uh, it was virtually impossible to uh, do equity theater at Theater 80. So from 1970 to 1994, we played uh, film classics. Uh, before we talk a little bit about the East Village and the vibe of the neighborhood, there are two other things that i got to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, upstairs from the theater is the Museum of the American Gangster. Uh, what had you decided to open that? Well, I, I grew up in organized crime. Um, for much of my life, I dressed plain. I, my family were Quaker, and uh, I, in fact, today I'm not wearing a, a collar on my shirt, and I would uh, not wear mustaches. I'd wear a fringe beard and my big broad-brim Quaker hat. People would stop me on the street and say, oh, I don't hold with organized religion. And I'd say, oh, no, I'm not a member of an organized religion. I'm a member of an organized crime community. We Quakers have no unifying theology. There's nothing more disorganized than a Quaker meeting trying to do business. The only thing from the very start we've done in an organized family uh, uh, fashion is break the law with uh, <laughs> the anti-conscription movement, the Underground Railroad today, the sanctuary movement. And so um, that and knowing the members of the gang that ran our place as a uh, speakeasy during Prohibition led in the um, uh, about 2006 or so to begin to organize a collection which became the Museum of the American Gangster. We give tours through our gallery and then down to the smuggling tunnels under the theater and the uh, uh, walk you through, for example, the tap room is half the original tap room from the speakeasy. But the uh, organizing ideal is to show the functional uh, role of organized crime standing between two concepts that make America the country it is, uh, moral certainty, the thou shalt not laws, and enculturation towards liberty, where whatever law we pass, half the nation says, well, we have an absolute right to do that. And it either winds up with the, uh, the gentle organized crime of the Underground Railroad or the five families on the uh, Lower East Side. So. Well, speaking of speakeasies, uh, you decided to open a bar at the same location. That, that was I, my father's dream. It, it, it had been a bar since 1922, and... Uh, the problem was the, the license elapsed in the transfer from the nightclub to my dad. And being Quaker, he couldn't uh, pay bribes, couldn't find it within his, uh, his leadings to pay bribes. And so um, we, it was the coffee ha- uh, shop of the, the theater for many years. If you remember my mother's blondies and brownies yes. <laughs> and brown gold coffee. And then uh, in around 2007, a little before, the uh, State Liquor Authority uh, instituted a major change where you could not bring money to pay uh, fees at the state liquor authority. Funny enough, uh, you paid through um, Wells Fargo, of all institutions, <laughs> but it ended the bribery system, 
And so we immediately applied, my wife and I, for a liquor license, and we relicensed the theater uh, bar. And uh, the one of our kind of organizing ideals was that um, there are some 70 bars on St. Mark's Place, and there are 70 different flavors of loud. But we decided to uh, bring back the atmosphere of um, what the place was in the 20s. So it's uh, we have... Uh, film clips from uh, the 1920s and 30s and uh, sort of a jazz age um, uh, uh, music videos so that uh, you could talk over the, um, the background music and uh, it's a place where you can go and actually speak to the people you're with, which is a novel idea these days in taverns. Well, it's a great place, and I highly recommend the Absent Sours. <laughs> I'm very partial to those. Um, of all the names you could have come up with, the, Will, the William Barnacle Tavern, I didn't even realize that that Barnacle was part of somebody's name. You just think of it as a thing well, with it, a small B on the front of it. Where, it it's, how did it's you come up very, with that name? It's a common Irish name. However, um, there was a friend of my wife and mine, a fellow named Barnacle Bill Scott, who uh, was an American merchant sailor who would uh, spend half the year sailing the other half of the year living in Tompkins Square Park and taking all the homeless kids to dinner and taking care of everyone till the money ran out and then he'd go back to sea. He uh, had a massive stroke and died at the age of 39. So um, we figured Barnacle Bill was a bit um, hackneyed, but we wanted to keep alive some of the, the present history of, uh, of St. Mark's Place as well as the deep past history. So we named the tavern after uh, Bill Scott, calling it William Barnacle. Okay. We have a photograph of him behind the bar, in fact, and on our side, the uh, fairly piratical-looking fellow with the S-shaped scar on his face <laughs> is the actual Bill Scott, who's an absolutely lovely guy. Well, in the, the short time we have left, it's been a fascinating conversation. I want to ask you about the, your view of the East Village. Uh, describe the vibe of the East Village now. What is it that you like about it? Oh, it's, it, it's funny. There's still pockets of the East Village that was uh, people who are... Um, dedicated to the community and uh, dedicated to the, uh, the, the culture and uh, the active uh, life. Uh, there's, for example, uh, a group of people uh, from the squats who are um, trying to produce a uh, work that was being written uh, by a young man in the squats called the, um, uh, the Squatter's Opera. And it's that sort of thing that, that still harkens back to the... Uh, the, the earlier East Village. And um, the, it's, it's St. Mark's Place, of course, is the most heavily touristed block outside of, out of Midtown. And uh, yet... There, on your block between uh, uh, First and Second or between well, Second the, and Third? All the way uh, from Third Avenue to Avenue A. Uh -huh. um, we're actually on one of the quieter blocks. Uh, the, um, probably the most... Um, it, it's as if there's a small oasis in the middle of the... Uh, uh, the, the craziness, and yet um, we still have a very active bar scene. And uh, I, I think that, that the, um, the restaurants and bars on St. Mark's Place with Jules and us and uh, uh, La Palapa have a certain degree more... Um, it's the kind of place where you could go and have a, a meal and not scream at the person sitting across from me at the table. Yes, the food at La Palapa Mexican restaurant is really good, and Jules is more French cuisine, and they have live jazz there. I we the also, nice. being that you're not heard in Israel, hopefully this will change it, we have a great um, uh, Israeli couple who are now uh, running the kitchen in our tavern, uh, 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 Foxface, and they do everything from camel to uh, elk and uh, uh, unique sandwiches. So, uh, and, and again, I think that's one of the things that marks our block on St. Mark's Place, uh, which we share with uh, Jules and La Palapa, is the idea that it's, it's high cuisine. And of course, the uh, West, Northwestern Chinese restaurant right across from us was um, uh, our friend, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name, this is terrible. He, uh, he, he uh, died in France recently, great food credit. Mm. Uh, 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 Tony Bourdain, it was Port Tony Bourdain's yeah. favorite restaurant, is right across the street from us. Uh, and also, to Anthony Bourdain and I both went to Vassar College. Looking at Joyce, we've talked about Vassar grads, although, yes, well, although, although he didn't graduate. In, in his bad uh, years, he was, he was uh, a lower insider. He's oh, in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, we have a very short time left. The East Village has undergone a lot of change. Um, is there anything you don't like about the way the neighborhoods change, Lorcan? The, the ownership. When, growing up, every building was owned by a working family, and uh, as a result, 
the, uh, there, the, there was a, uh, uh, a real sense of community. This is the first generation where a handful of people own the entire Lower East Side, and it has created a, uh, one of the reasons we've lost so many restaurants and theaters is this hyperinflation, which is basically turning New York into a Midwestern shopping mall. Mm. And a lot of the properties are now owned by a particular special advisor to uh, you-know-who anyway. <laughs> yes, indeed. Lorcan, I'm sorry we're out of time. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Rediscovering New York. Lorcan and his wife, Jeannie, own Theater 80 on 80 St. Mark's Place, as well as the Museum of the American Gangster and the William Barnacle Tavern. You can like us on Facebook. It's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can also follow me on Instagram, uh, jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategies at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate broker at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.